This is G-N-E, the podcast, Golf and Entrepreneurship, with golf course architect, Rob Collins. Whoa, you know, it took me 24 or 48 hours to to wrap my head around it, but I, you know, it was was my baby. It was my baby. I I just, I, I loved it. I knew how good it was. I knew that if it saw the light of day, that it would it would be successful, and I never stopped believing in it. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of G&E, the podcast where each week we talk with individuals who are creating remarkable careers, lives, and businesses around this great game. And this week's guest is the epitome of that statement, Rob Collins, who is the golf course architect behind the famed Sweetens Cove and is one of the hottest names in the industry right now, joined us to tell the inspiring story of how their firm, King Collins Golf Course Design and Construction, came to be. And it is a fascinating one, to say the least, that required a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to get to where they are today. So I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. And without further ado, Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. How's it going? Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be on. Absolutely. So our listeners can get an idea of you know, who you are, where are you calling in from? I'm calling from Chattanooga, Tennessee. I, I grew up um, in Chattanooga and uh, ended up moving back here uh, almost 10 years ago. So um, uh, it's you know good good to be back home and uh, enjoying raising kids here. That's awesome, man. Well, congrats on everything that you have achieved recently, and you've made quite the name for yourself, and that is by no mistake. It's been a lot of work in the making, and we're going to get to that entire story here in a second, but I would love to rewind back a bit to your roots with golf. And so for our listeners, how did you get into the game in the first place? Well, I played different sports growing up. Um, You know, I played when I was a kid, played baseball, basketball, soccer, you know, stuff like that. A little bit of tennis and uh, golf wasn't really part of my life. The first time I played was I was in fifth grade with my dad. And um, whenever I played, I'd play with dad and we'd, we'd go out, you know, maybe two or three times a year and play. Like we'd go up to Fall Creek Falls and, and go play or go down to Callaway Gardens or something like that. And golf was fun, but I didn't, I didn't really play it all that much. You weren't hooked then, on it growing I, up is what you're saying, basically. Well, I mean, I, I really enjoyed it and, yeah. and liked the game, but I, did, I, I was just playing other sports, you know, and, and so it, it didn't really grab me until I'd say my latter part of my teen years. Um, I, I played tennis in high school and really started getting burnt out on that. And um, one of my best friends um, growing up was the, was the number one player on our high school team. And, he, he was obviously a really good player and, um, you know, he kind of got me into it and I, I started playing more golf with him and then, you know, started playing more with my dad and, you know, that was kind of around 17 and 18 and, and I just, you know, the more good shots I hit, the more I loved it. And it just kind of snowballed and, and, and really fell in love with the game and it pretty quickly became my favorite sport um, around that age. And then, um, my friend who his name is Zach McClister, um, he took me and, or his dad took me and, and one of his friends on kind of a trip of a lifetime, 
when Zach graduated from high school, Zach was a year behind me, and we went over to uh, Scotland and went to the old course and played there and toured around and, and went to the um, first three rounds of the 94 Open at, uh, at Turnberry. And that was a real eye-opening experience for me. I was a freshman in college, and seeing the game played like that and on those courses and having a chance to play the old course was just hugely, you know, eye-opening. And um, I, you know, was really starting to get into golf at that point, and that kind of blew my mind. And I started to get this wild idea at that time that I was you know, too afraid to tell anybody else that I might want to be a golf course architect <laughs> because I didn't even know how you would ask. even do it. I mean, that's like, you know, I knew that, you know, Pete Dye was a golf course architect and Tom Fazio, but it's like, how do you even, how do you even do that? How does that even happen? I mean, it's just such a weird profession. I just, I didn't even really spend that much time thinking about it, but it just kind of crept into my mind because I was just so fascinated with with the old course and, and how the games played over there and and so it just kind of percolated in my mind and that was kind of the beginning of it yeah I was, I was gonna say so it sounds to me like that was really your inspiration to get into golf course architecture but we talked about this before the interview and i had a chance to talk with riley johns and, and keith reb and a common point in our, you know, our conversations was how competitive of an industry it is to get into. And like you just said there, it's like, you know, how, how do I even, how do I even do this? So how did you get your start then from this time where you see the old course, you're like, okay, this is something I would love to do one day to, you know, you're actually doing it. Well, I, um, so I went to a small school uh, about 45 minutes North of Chattanooga called Swanee. Um, it's a small liberal arts college and I was an art history major there. I mean, you know, people are English majors or history or whatever. Um, so, you know, that kind of you know, didn't really have necessarily any, any application to golf architecture, but I kind of continued to think maybe one day that's something I would want to do. And then I got out of, I got out of school and did a few random jobs and, in Atlanta for about four years, I um, actually worked for the Atlanta Hawks in the PR department for a little bit and worked for an advertising company and did, you know, did a few things. And some of it was fun, like working for the Hawks. Some of it was uh, pretty, pretty dreadful. But I, I, I kind of realized that um, in my early 20s that I, I couldn't run away or hide from, from my future anymore. And I, I really was kind of committed to pursuing my dreams and my primary dream was, was being a golf architect. So I felt like the best way for me to pursue that would be to go back to school. And I went and got a graduate degree in landscape architecture at Mississippi state. Uh, my wife is, is from Mississippi and we were married in 2002. And that was kind of a good demarcation point in my life to press the reset button and try something else. And so I started at Mississippi state and, the fall of 2002, a couple of weeks after we got married and uh, finished up there in 05. And I was really fortunate to come out of uh, graduate school at a time when, you know, people were still building golf courses and there was uh, places for people like me with no experience whatsoever to, to be able to get hired. And um, 
you know, Mississippi State also was a really good fit for me because, you know, I talked to a few other programs and other schools and Auburn for one was like, no, we don't want you. We're not, you know, you need to really focus on landscape architecture. We're not, they didn't want you to golf architects. Oh, really? They, I made it, I made it immensely clear that I was not there to be a landscape architect. I have zero <laughs> interest in being a landscape architect. I want to be a golf course architect. It was and a I stepping stone for you. Skills. This, this is a stepping stone for me. And I, I want to use the skills you guys can teach me to, to launch into that. And Mississippi State's like, great, come on. And, and they were very open to that. And, I, and of course you have, in order to get a degree, I mean, you have to have a basic curriculum that you adhere to, but, um, I did have opportunities at Mississippi State to, you know, as much as humanly possible, tailor, you know, some of my stuff to golf. And that was really cool that they were open to that. And, you know, I think that going to, you know, a graduate design program was was very beneficial in the sense that it it, it helps you start to think like a designer. You start to understand how you can see a landscape and, and what can be done with it. And you think of things in a, in a landscape scale and a large scale. And, um, so, you know, it did provide some, you know, good, a good foundation for me, but my best education came in the field. Um, I went and worked for a guy, um, named Rick Robbins, a, a golf course architect out of Raleigh, just a great guy, really a prince of a guy. He was the first guy that, really ever gave me a shot and I worked for Rick from June of 04 to like February of 05 and they didn't really I think they wanted to hire me full time but it just kind of didn't work out you know they were a really small shop and but I, I learned a lot from Rick and uh, one of the guys that worked for Rick named Brian Lucier, um another really good guy he knew a guy um, that was working for player the player group and they needed some help. And so I ended up finding myself in a on-site design coordinator role with, with the player group, which was a great, um, really a, a fantastic education. And that's where I kind of fell in love with site work and started to understand the, you know, how the, the design side, you know, kind of stuff I did with, Rick and, and kind of in graduate school, how that matched up with construction. And so that was a very valuable time. Yeah. And so it sounds to me that when you first started working for the Gary Player Design Group, that it was really a chance to sharpen your teeth. And I'm curious with a lack of a better term here, I guess it's kind of like an entry level job into golf course architecture, as opposed to now where you're managing entire projects like Sweetens Cove. So what did your role look like when you were first starting out working for Player? Well, uh, keep in mind, this was in 2005, 2006, they were building, you know, hundreds of courses a year domestically, not the player group necessarily, but, you know, all across golf architecture. I mean, there were, you know, hundreds of golf courses being built every year. Um, it was very, a very, very busy time. And, um, I was really thrown into the fire. I, I went and uh, the design coordinator role was one where, it was my job to implement the vision of, of Gary player design on site. And basically that meant that I worked hand in hand with the golf contractor um, who was contracted by the client to build, actually build the golf course. And I was okay. kind of on the design side, you know, making sure that the, the, the senior designers 
uh, drawings and plans and thoughts were being implemented properly on the ground. It's a way to it's a way for a big shop like um, Player Nicholas um, to to have some control over what goes on on the in the ground. And so, you know, I was in daily contact with the design, the DA, the design associate. I was a DC, a design coordinator, and you know, I was green. I was real green, but it was, you know, it was a trial by fire. I mean, you had to learn, <laughs> you had to, you know, you had to learn on the job. And, yeah. and so that was, that was the best education you could possibly get. I mean, I learned more in just a, you know, a month of that job than I did in, in almost three years of graduate school, just, just because it was just a daily grind, a grind of, of, this is how it works in, in the real world. And, you know, you learn from your mistakes and, you know, try to, you know, I was very, very committed to it and was trying my absolute hardest to, you know, give the player group what they wanted and give Frank, the the DA, what he wanted. And, um, but, you know, when you're working with a contractor and, you know, that, that was a whole new deal for me. That was, yeah. that was a real eye opener. And, um, so that was extremely valuable. Yeah. And I heard you mention there that it sounds to me like you were very much on site, like you said, taking the vision that the Gary player group wanted and turning it into a reality. And, uh, you know, I was looking at your guys' website and it seems like part of your philosophy, a very strong part is that, uh, you believe that a golf course is built, you know, being on site, you know, not just having plans and, and hiring someone else to do it. And so it sounds like, uh, this was kind of the start of that vision coming, you know, to reality. And so then I guess, uh, you know, what was the inspiration to go and start your own firm with, uh, Tad King? Well, that was, that's a good segue because, um, Tad and I met on the first project that I was involved with, with player Tad was working as a shaper for a golf contractor called Ryan golf. And they're a, a, you know, a, a big shop down in Florida. They do a ton of work all over the place. And Tad was, was working for them. And Tad and I met on that project and we were sort of kindred spirits. And we realized that we thought that there was a more effective way to design and build golf than doing it, you know, the traditional way, which is a golf architect on one hand with a set of plans that are, you know, have a bill of quantities and everything. And those are passed out to a, a group of contractors who then bid on those, those quantities. And, and then the client selects which contractor the architect's going to work with. And that method, you know, has produced a, a lot of golf courses, some of which are, you know, really good, but there's shortcomings to it. It's, um, you know, the, the architect and the, the contractor aren't always on the same page and, it's just uh it sounds expensive and slow it, it it can it's it can be very expensive and it can be slow it can also be expensive and too fast at times okay. you know you can have a you know you can have a contractor that uh, and I'm not saying this true of all contractors but you know you can definitely get in a situation where the contractor doesn't care about uh, you know, the, the quality of, and the craftsmanship of the work as much as the architect might. And, you know, any changes that are made, you know, a lot of times there's change orders and it just, it, it's, I, I think it's a, a far less efficient and far less effective way to, to build golf. And, you know, I was always 
really into the you know the craftsmanship of the work and doing something that you know would would stand the test of time and, and you know really putting yourself into it and not just flying through something just to get it done just to say it's done and and I felt like if you combined architecture and construction under one umbrella then you can um you know have total artistic freedom you're not going to have to be running to you know or getting in a fight with a contractor going god can we make this change <laughs> and and things like that i mean you, you just you just do it you don't have to um sit, sit around and and wait for somebody else's approval um and also there's efficiencies built in with it i mean you, if you're the ones designing and building um you know during the construction process things are fluid and you you make the changes necessary to to make make things fit the best one of the things i've learned um, in, in my time is that, you know, some of the best things on a golf project happen by accident and, and it's having talented people in the field to recognize those fortuitous accidents and, and to take advantage of them. But in that accident, maybe a little, you know, bump or roll off the side of a green where you've got more dirt than you thought you had. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, that's really cool. If I tie this into here and here and do this and that and you know, kind of taking a very fluid approach to, to golf and golf construction is, I think, definitely the superior way to go about it. And, you know, I also recognize that, you know, the, to me, the best golf courses of the last 20, 30 years have been built with a kind of in-house method. I mean, if you look at, you know, Sand Hills and, and Pacific Dunes and, and places like that, I mean, they 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 had their guys on site doing the shaping, do, you know, doing the, all the artistic stuff on top of the ground that, that you see and that you play on. And, um, that's the, it's just a superior way to do it. And so Tad and I, um, put our heads together and said, you know, one day, and we even came up with a name. It's so we'll call it King Collins. I just, it kind of rolls off the tongue, you know, was this when you guys and, first and, met back, uh, when you're working together? Mm-hmm, yeah. This was in like wow. 2006. Yeah. And so, it's kind of funny, actually. We we were with our families um, at a at a Carabas restaurant in in Bonita Springs, Florida, is where we were when we came up with with the name King Collins. So <laughs> we kind of have a <laughs> we kind of have a joke about you know King Collins was founded at a Carabas in Bonita yeah, I love Springs. Carabas. But that's the truth. It, it was. Yeah. We were we were you know having a dinner with our families and and we were talking about all the things I'm talking to you about and. Like one day we're going to do it. We're going to do it. I mean, Tad was busy shaping. I had a kind of a career going with player, and but it was like I one day I've always wanted to be out on my own, and we're we're going to do this. And that's you know, awesome. I love hearing. Yeah, I love hearing the origin story of how like an idea came to be, and it always seems to be in a setting like that, very casual. And so, yeah. like, so you guys have this idea. When did you guys team up and you know get going? So I was. Um, working with player on a project up in, in Cranbrook, British Columbia, after the one in Florida, um, a project called Wildstone. And, um, I, I was on the third, we were grassing the third fairway in September of, uh, it would have been 08, um, almost exactly 10 years ago when, when Bear Stearns collapsed. That's just one of the moments I'll always remember. And I went up to the guy, who was feeding the fairway and I'm like, it's over. We're done. That's insane. <laughs> I mean, like the, the world's coming, the world's coming to an end. I mean, 
and, and that what you know Bear Stearns collapsing wasn't what caused the Wildstone project to shut down, but it was obvious that you know they were already having funding issues, and I mean that was kind of like there's no way this project's ever getting off the ground, at least you know not in the next year or so. And sure enough, you know I worked for three or four more weeks, and um, my last day at Wildstone was right around Halloween. 10 years ago and um the project did shut the, the original owners you know, unfortunately lost it and then it did end up getting revived by by a group out of calgary and it's a you know it's a thriving operation now and you know i i keep up keep track of them on twitter and stuff and they're open and doing great and so thankfully the golf course uh, did get saved but it did get shut down and for a period of time and so when it got shut down, I mean, I, I called, you know, the president of Gary Player Design and talked to the DA I was working under, and the the unfortunate reality was is that they just didn't have enough work. I mean, things really came to a grinding halt at that point, and so I didn't have anywhere to go. I had a four year old, almost four year old daughter at the time, wow, and a wife, and and we decided we'd move back to Chattanooga. We'd always wanted to be back in Chattanooga. We kind of envisioned ourselves there one day. Um, but the the financial crisis is what forced my hand, and we moved home. And I did some landscape architecture work for a couple of years just to kind of make ends meet, and it was pretty miserable, really. I mean, I hated it, and I was dying to get back into golf architecture. And then uh, the the Sweetens Cove project fell in my lap, thank God, and. So, so did, did, did Tag King have a similar, um, event happen during the recession? Was it, you know, kind of like, well, now there's not enough work for me as well. And so let's just, uh, you know, let's join up. And so, so in a way it sounds like, yes, it was miserable, but looking back, it's, it's a little bit of a blessing in disguise because it kind of forced your hand to go out on your own. And then eventually, you know, a few years later when it all culminated, Sweetens Cove came to be. Yeah. Well, it was a huge blessing in disguise. And I mean, I think, you know, my lucky stars that, that, that my hand was forced uh, every day and, and that that happened. Tad was fortunate at the time to be working on a, a pretty solid project over in Egypt. And, um, he was kind of the, the point man on that, um, for, for Tim Lobb, uh, English architect and, and Tad was, I mean, he was doing everything. He was shaping it. He was, you know, Tim's DA basically he was a design coordinator. I mean, he was everything. He, he was, you know, the main guy on site, the project manager, everything. And, um, so he was fortunate to have that, but, um, on or about 2010, I, I just called him or texted him and I was like, man, let's just, let's just do it. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's start a business and let's, let's try to find some work and, He's he's like okay cool let's let's do it and I love it and around that time uh, around that time I I was um, in touch with Gil Hans and I was desperate to stay involved in, in architecture and Gil had been hired to create a master plan for Lookout Mountain Golf Club a really cool Seth Rayner course um, right outside Chattanooga and I went up and met Gil one day when he was there the superintendent. Um, for lookout at the time was a super nice guy named Mark Stovall, a good friend of mine. 
and he, he introduced me to Gil and Gil's like, yeah, sure. You know, if things, you know, work out, we'd like to have you help out here. And, um, Gil ended up not doing work there, but he ended up, uh, redoing the Sewanee course where I went to college. Uh, it's a nine hole course. And, um, so I contacted Mark Stovall again and I said, Hey, you know, is there anything you can do for me? Help me get involved up at Sewanee. And, uh, Mark said, yeah, I know the guy who's kind of leading that up. He's a, a kind of a local golfing legend in, in Chattanooga, a guy named King Emig. And, and King is a, um, tragically passed away about three years ago, but was a, just a very vibrant guy and, um, loved golf, loved quirky architecture. He and I hit it off immediately and King's like, yeah, sure. I'll help you, you know, whatever you, you know, try to get you involved up at Swanee. I'll talk to Gil. And he said, but I've got, I just heard about this possible project down in the Sequatchie Valley. There, there's this old course down there called Sequatchie Valley Golf and Country Club. And the people who own it are thinking about doing something to it. I'll put you in touch with them. And, and so I emailed Tad, super excited. I mean, I still have the email. This was in like July of 2010. And, um, I did get put in touch with the, with the Thomas family who, who owned the, own the property and you know we kind of started a dialogue and then in in march of 2011 we got hired which was wow i mean god almighty i mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah you just, know you, you know it's it's one of those moments yeah. we were lucky but you know you you also i mean i do love gary players old saying you know the harder i work the luckier i get Absolutely. you know we put ourselves in a position to get lucky but we also got lucky and, um, so, I mean, I'm thankful for that relationship yeah. and that phone call every day. That was, we were, that was good. That's amazing how those Real things, good. yeah, it's amazing how that happens in a moment like that really just kind of changes the trajectory of your life. And I'm sure you're getting a little tired of telling the, the Sweetens Cove story by this point, but for our listeners who don't know about it, it was a, it was a true labor of love, if you may. It took a lot of blood, sweat and tears to get it off the ground. And so can you tell us, you know, really how you guys pulled this off? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, um, it's truly nothing short of a miracle that, that Sweetens Cove exists. Yeah. Um, I, I won't, if I was to give you the entire story, we'd be, we'd still be <laughs> on the phone in two hours. So I'll kind of give you a little bit of the reader's digest version, but Perfect. it was quite a saga. Um, we were hired in 2011, um, to build this golf course and, um, you know, like understandably it was, you know, a, a low budget job. And, um, you know, we, we brought in a, a really talented shaper named Gus Grantham. And, um, we worked with, with some of the, the local guys, um, who were kind of under the umbrella of our, con- of our client, um, who owned a, a, a concrete manufacturing company in South Pittsburgh, called Sequatchie Concrete. And those guys, you know, they have a ton of experience in, in building roads and, and doing construction work. So they had a lot of their own equipment and um, a lot of their own materials, own sand and so forth. So it was it was a good fit um, for us because we were able to work with the client, with their guys, with their materials to keep costs down. So it was a good fit for our kind of our design build method. And um you know, we just ground and ground and ground and, and just worked our asses off, basically. Um, I was out there every day, 
And, you know, it was really just kind of a few key people with, with, with you know, other guys involved. Um, and, and we got it grassed out in, in 2012, it took us about, you know, the, the construction was about a year. And interestingly, the, the construction of our course was going on at the same time that Gil was building the course up at Suwannee. So, okay. um, it's kind of a funny thing that, um, you know, two of the only golf courses being constructed in the United States in 2011, 2012 were rural nine hole golf courses in East Tennessee, which 25 minutes apart, which is just the strangest thing. And then there was a lot of Suwannee connections inside that too. I went to Suwannee. My clients went to Suwannee. My clients donated a huge amount of sand to that project. Um, King, my colleague or my friend who referred me to the job was a Suwannee guy. So it was kind of an interesting overlap and in how those two projects were really, really tied together and have an interesting history. But anyway, we, we plugged through and got, we got it wrapped up and, and, um, grassed out in 2012. Um, and at that point in time, you know, there were some questions about how, how the project was going to move forward. And, um, you know, my, my client, um, kind of plugged away with it and, you know, for, for about another year, they, it, it, it didn't get open. It never got open during that time. Um, we were just, I was out there with, with the superintendent and the guys, um, actually working free of charge. Um, I was just, was, was working just to, just to help them get it open. Um, we were, we were, it's a long story, but we had, we had some bad seed that never, um, germinated and and we have miles and miles of bunker edge. So we had to regrass all the bunkers. And so there was some quite a bit of work to do. And, you know, I was working really hard on that. And, and then in, in August of 2013, um, my client decided that, you know, concrete manufacturing was more in line with, with what they wanted to do. And, um, they, they approached me and said, Hey, you know, we're, we're going to wash our hands of this project, but, um, if you'd like to, we'd, you know, we'll, we'll lease the property to you and Jeez. you can give it a shot as far as, a you know, <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> so as far as, you know, managing this, this golf course, not managing, but being the owner operator yeah. essentially. So, I mean, I was just like, uh, Whoa, you know, I, it, it took me it took me 24 or 48 hours to to wrap my head around it, but I, you know, kind of had to do it. Was, it. it was my baby. Yeah. It was my baby. I, I just I I loved it. I knew how good it was. I knew that if it saw the light of day, that it would it would be successful, and I never stopped believing in it. And so. I ended up negotiating with them on a, on a deal and, and we got a deal done. Um, we signed the deal in May of 2014. Um, interestingly, um, my original partner on the deal is a guy named Ari Techner. Um, he's a, um, the owner of scratch golf clubs, you know, the, the custom club manufacturer. Yep. Mm-hmm. And this kind of goes back to an earlier part of our conversation. I got put in touch with Ari through Mark Stovall, the, Lookout Mountain Superintendent, okay. who originally put me in touch with King, the guy that referred me to the project. So Mark Stovall was like 
the linchpin, kind of the, the center point who originally put me in touch with the guy that really helped me get the job. And then Mark put me in touch with the guy I ended up partnering with um, as, as far as an, in an owner operator role. And, um, and Ari and uh, one of his partners, a guy named Patrick Boyd, who ended up becoming our, our great GM for the last four years, um, they came out in Thanksgiving of, of 2013. And the course at that point was, you know, was not being maintained. It was, it was just kind of sitting there and we went out and played it. And <laughs> I was like actively looking for partners at that point, somebody to come along, come in and, and kind of help me do this. And, um, Ari and Patrick were like, Oh my God, this place is unbelievable. Like they're huge golf nuts. They've traveled all over the world, seen, seen all kinds of places. And, uh-huh. and Ari's, you know, he's got a little bit of a, risk taker personality like me and he's just like yeah screw it let's do it and so i'm like okay we'll do it and um and so we jumped in bed together and um we've added some added some partners along the way and managed um to keep the thing open through sheer force of will um it's not been easy but we're here and and we ain't going anywhere Oh yeah. And it, I mean, with this being a golf and entrepreneurship podcast, like that whole story right there is just remarkable. It's like exactly what we're going for. And the fact that you had this perseverance and vision, and I'm sure there were so many times where you felt like, you know, you wanted to quit and it was just, uh, you know, just holding that belief and it all paid off in spades. And I think one of the reasons beyond the fact that you created an amazing golf course is that, you were able to leverage the internet to create this phenomenal buzz. And one thing that happened was you're featured in the New York times. And so what does something like that do for a golf course like this? I mean, there's some moments, you know, where you're like, Holy crap. I mean, this, this this, is happening. This this is huge. Like this is, this is actually going to happen. I mean, there were so many moments where uh, more than I can even tell in a podcast where it did not look good. You know, like I I was, we opened the golf course in October of 2014, exactly four years ago, almost to the, to the week. And we ran out of money that day. Like literally I had to let the the maintenance staff go we had no more money and that was brutal. So it was like this huge mix of emotions. Um, We got open, but, we sorry guys. I mean, we don't have any money. So Patrick ran the pro shop without taking a salary for the entire winter. And I maintained the golf course by myself for the entire winter. Um, we were able to, um, you know, scrape together some more capital from a, from a, a couple investors who came in over the winter. And then we hired, uh, our superintendent, Brent Robertson, who's still with us. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of moments along the way that were like that, where it was just, I mean, we were hanging on by so thread, so many, just, so, hanging by a thread that was yeah. not even, that was one microfiber thick. And, um, I thought that in 2016, no, sorry, it would have been 17 in the summer of 2017, that thread was about to snap. I mean, I had no more bullets in the cliff. I had, I was personally out of money. I 
had given everything I could to it. Um, it was just, I didn't, I had nowhere else to turn and we were, and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine life without Sweden's Cove. And, um, I'd been in touch with, um, this guy, Dylan DeChere, who, who wrote the article. He wrote a fantastic book called 18 in America, mm-hmm. um, which all your listeners, I really encourage you to check that out. It's a golf travel odyssey. Dylan's an amazingly brilliant guy. He wrote the book when he was like 19 years old. He's a published author in his teens. I mean, wow. <laughs> ridiculous. Impressive. And, um, and so Dylan and I kind of stayed in touch and he was like, he, he wanted he played professional golf for a little bit. He has an interesting story too. And he told me, he said, Rob, I really want to tell the story of Sweeten's Cove. And I was thinking he'd get it on like Bill Simmons website, the ringer that used to be around or maybe in golf digest or something like that. I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah, that'd be great. And he's like, well, I'm going to shoot for the stars. I'm going to try to get in the New York times. I'm like, all right, buddy, go for it. <laughs> and, um, whatever you say. And yeah. so, yeah, yeah, it sounds good to me. And so I did this, really long interview with him and 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 he this was in like early 2017 it took a while but then like summer like around uh june or july he called me and he's like i think it's gonna happen i'm like no way (laughs) are you serious and i mean i was just i could not believe that sweeten's cove was going to be in the new york times he's like yeah the sports editor loves it they want to run it it's it might be a little while and Finally, I got this phone call. I was working on this project down in Naples, Florida, and Dylan's like, can you be in, or no, the, the photographer was going to come down. And they're like, can you be in in Chattanooga tomorrow? That's when the photographer can come. And I'm like, yes, I will be in Chattanooga tomorrow. Yeah, and no. <laughs> I, I, I got a plane ticket, flew up there, met this photographer who the day before um, had photographed Sally Yates at her home in Atlanta. I mean, like, so... <laughs> Like they were so far, but you're, you're just blown away at this big, point. Big, big, you're just, yeah, I'm just like, I, yeah. I'm like living in a dream. I'm like, wait, you were photographing Sally Yates yesterday. And like, you know, you're sweet and scope. Like <laughs> they were so big time beyond what we're accustomed to. Yeah. And, um, and, and it just like happened like bam, bam, bam. Like when the New York times tells you get off your butt and move, you do it. And then, and then, and then, it, and then it got in the times, I think it was August 15th last year. And, um, the impact was immediate. It, it, it absolutely saved the business. Like we were people just starting to fly it. in to come play it. How? I mean, oh yeah. I yeah, mean, okay. people, people, people were coming in from everywhere and it totally legitimized it too. And it also, you know, one thing that, you know, Dylan's story did too, was kind of, he laid out, you know, a lot of what I told you in this podcast, um, I mean, there was an interesting story behind Sweeten's Cove. And I think that people were, were attracted to that. And I think, you know, in 2016 and 2017, the, the shed and the portalette and all that stuff were like a huge liability because people weren't wanting to come out. They, they just, for some reason, the golfing public just felt like they needed, you know, the amenities of a, that you normally find. And, and it just, they, they would just, we, we could not internally, we could not believe it. We're like, we have one of the best golf courses in the country. Yeah. And, and that clubhouse like, is going to turn you away. Like and, and, and the, the, the clubhouse, I mean, give me a break. And then, and then after the time story and all the buzz and everything, it's funny how it's changed. Like the club, the, 
clubhouse, the shed and the it's kind of iconic now. Have like have, are, are kind of iconic now, and, and it's actually become a strength. And as as we grow, um, and we actually do want to have a real clubhouse, but you know, how do we kind of keep the the vibe and the feel of what we've got? With we don't want to ruin it. You know, that's a really important thing but but we also do recognize it as a business we do have to expand and, and grow but we need to you know keep a handle on our on our roots and and respect that going forward but the yeah like i said i mean the times article saved the business one of the funniest things was as i was um i was out working on the golf course with a weed eater like knocking a bunch of weeds down in the bunkers and i came up to the shed and i'm just like covered and sweat and mess and everything and there's this guy in there with a Boston Strong members logo on and I'm <laughs> and I'm like nice shirt and he's like yeah and uh, it, it, I, I've, I, I've actually had the opportunity to play there so I recognized the logo and I knew it was the members logo and we start talking and he and his buddy had read the article and they just decided to get on a plane and come down and play it and Amazing. um that was just an amazing thing. And, uh, God. so, so I mean, were you guys ranked? Um, cause I know now it's like number 59 in the top 100 modern golf courses. And, uh, you know, before the article, was it ranked or does, does this all come from that New York times piece? No. So we, we got ranked in 17, we got ranked number 59. Um, and that was part of the appeal. I think of the New York times piece was that this little nine hole golf course was, was rated ahead of both the U S open and the PGA championship sites last year. And then, um, this year we actually jumped up to number 50. So we're, we're technically number 50 now. Um, but that was kind of a funny, you know, a funny thing that happened for sure. Yeah. And I think what you just said there, rewinding back a bit is that this article showed that it wasn't just another golf course, that there was an actual story behind it and that it had grit and, People were attracted to this, and in so many ways, this has changed your life. And like I said, I had the chance to speak with Riley and Keith about Winter Park, and that course, as well as achieved massive success, a nine-hole course that, similar to Sweetens Cove, is getting a ton of positive press. And so to transition the interview to a new topic, um, do you think lean courses like this will be, I guess, the future of golf? I think that golf courses like this um, are the future of golf. I don't know if it's necessarily that it's a lean operation mm-hmm. um, that 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 is is the future of golf. I, I do think that a lean operation is important because you can't hemorrhage money out of a a garish clubhouse and, and expect to to be viable. But I think the most important thing and the thing that um, Riley and Keith, uh, both of whom are, are good friends of mine, did very well there. And I think that we did well at Sweetens Cove is we, you know, they created a very authentic, cool golf course. And that's what that's what matters. I mean, particularly among millennials, um, it, the that age group is very much in pursuit and interested in um, interacting with authentic properties. They're not, they're not getting fooled or, or not interested in the, the glossy magazine spreads, you know, with things with fountains and all that kind of crap that used to be of interest. $100 to plus people. tea time. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's people are people are. There's definitely a movement afoot in in golf, and you know where people are pursuing authenticity, and um, and I think that you know Keith and Riley did a great job with you know creating a very authentic experience that is very much tied to the place that that golf course where that golf course exists, you know, it's in a neat little neighborhood and it's, it's exactly what that place needed to be. And, you know, in the same sense, I think that Sweetens Cove um, fits with where it, where it is. And, you know, in, in, in a strange way, I mean, as we've evolved, I mean, again, going back to the shed and everything, I mean, that, that was not by design. I mean, I think one of the things that I've, that we laugh about internally is that, you know, a lot of, you know, golf courses will spend tons of money creating a brand and and all this kind of stuff and trying to attract people to their property. And the the very nature of creating a brand is it's, it's kind of, I mean, you're kind of making stuff up, right? I mean, but, but no sane person would do Sweetens Cove the way <laughs> the way we did it. I mean, it was just done that way because we didn't have any money, and we, yeah. it just kind of happened. And as a result of the way things happen, there is a, a certain level of authenticity that you can't buy with just you know just creating a brand out of a you know if a well funded operation creates a brand, they're not going to achieve the same level of authenticity that we were able to because we were able to grind it out and you know, had we been this super well-oiled, well-funded machine, it wouldn't have the same level of authenticity and brand appeal. But because of all the crazy stuff that happened to get it to where it is, it's like that story is, is part of the fabric of the club. And it's, you know, it's, um, it's, in, it's invaluable at this point. Absolutely. And to go off what you were saying there is, uh, you know, people are looking for things to be, I would say, a little quicker now. And so, uh, you know, going and playing 18 holes after work isn't really a possibility. And I live in Charlotte and there's a nine hole muni here and it gets a ton of traffic because simply put, it's $18 and you can play in an hour and a half. And so I think like with with the fact of Sweetens Cove and Winter Park, and this is a podcast for another day. It's a discussion we could go on with for hours. But I personally think that it seems like as a business model with getting people in the golf, especially in uh, metropolitan areas, it just makes sense. But to uh, to continue on with with the interview and the evolution of King Collins, uh, you know, Sweetens did tremendous things for you and your firm's career. And so one of those recently, and if you're on Twitter, you obviously know about this, is Zach Player's uh, Buck Club. And uh, so how did this opportunity come your way? I was um, on Twitter, like, of course, my relationship with Zach started on Twitter. I mean, that, where, else, where else would it start? Yeah. <laughs> um, it was like, it was maybe like three years ago or something. I was at my in-law's house. and It was either for Christmas or, or Thanksgiving, and I was... I was just on Twitter and there's this tour pro who's like making all these really insightful comments about golf architecture and <laughs> like really into it. And I'm like, what in the world is this? And so I followed him and he followed me back and we started texting and, um, you know, we just kind of had a friendly, you know, relationship through, through DMs and, um, Andy Johnson, uh, of the fried egg, 
um, came out to Sweeten's Cove and, and, you know, I've, I've linked to Andy's blog and, and the stuff he's written about us on our website, but, um, Andy's, you know, had a lot of really, really nice things to say. And, um, Andy's work, I mean, is a big part of the reason Sweeten's Cove still exists. I mean, every Absolutely. single day that there's somebody who comes into Sweeten's Cove who either heard about us from the fried egg or, or from knowing up and, it it never fails. I mean, that's how, that's how, that's how, that's how powerful the, their voices are. Um, and what a real world impact it's made on us. And we would have been gone a long time ago if it wasn't for Andy and, and for, for knowing up and, you know, other people who, who've supported us. But, um, you know, it's, um, it's just kind of a, a remarkable, you know, way that it, way that it all came about. But, um, anyway, yeah, and then you get connected with Zach through through Twitter, and it's um, you know now you get the chance to kind of create another masterpiece, if you may. And so you guys had the ringer, um, you know, sixty some plus people out there to support this and get it off the ground. And so I'm curious. There's been a lot of talk about this, but I'd love to enlighten our listeners on it. Uh, what is the plan for the Buck Club? So um, yeah, so you know Zach and I, um, our relationship kind of got solidified uh through andy um and and we went out there a year ago and at that point in time zach kind of came to the realization that that he needed to kind of you know partner with you know with somebody to kind of help realize the vision and that's when we when things really started to get serious was about a year ago and then you know we um you know we obviously did the plan and then zach had this amazing idea for the ringer and the amount of buzz that ha- has been created from that is is absolutely insane. I mean, I've, I I actually put if you could, um, you know, put a, a dollar value to the you know amount of a- advertising you know that you got from it. I I really put the ringer right up there with the New York Times article as far as exposure. Uh, it's just absolutely incredible um yeah it really was it was just a uh, a really good marketing play to basically get an entire social media community behind one thing yeah and one of the, one of the funniest tweets of the weekend was from somebody who wasn't there but they said what <laughs> and this kind of encapsulated the whole thing they said what's the disaster plan if all of golf twitter gets you know evaporated <laughs> in a tragic accident at sweet and Scott? but like there was tons of people there who you know are, are very active on, on twitter and stuff and um, it was it was really kind of surreal seeing Sweetens Cove be the the center of attention like that, sustained for a weekend, and everybody that was at the ringer just left, you know, kind of with this glow around them. I mean, I certainly didn't. And I, we, Zach and I, followed up with people who were there. It was just this magical weekend that you know, really all credit to Zach and his enthusiasm and vision and excitement for his his baby the buck club um he you know brought a ton of visibility to it and as a result of the ringer we have tons of momentum right now i mean i I really think that there's an excellent chance um that 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 the buck club will start um sometime and you know after the snow melts next year i mean we've got a ton of momentum and it and it's a lot largely a result of of the ringer he's had a lot of inquiries from from people 
who are interested in being founding members or investors. Uh, I'm going back. I'm actually flying back out there on Sunday, uh, and Tad's going to spend the whole week out there next week. You know, putting a hard budget together, really, really finalizing numbers and 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 trying to push this thing forward. But um, somebody said at, at the end of the weekend, they're like, Zach, did did you study marketing at BYU? And he's like, no. And and they're like, you're a marketing genius, and he truly is. I mean, it's and this, this this friend of mine just called me yesterday, who was a in the graduate uh, marketing program at, in in Tuscaloosa, and I mean, he has a graduate degree in that. And he's like, Zach is like seriously a marketing genius, and it's like it's incredible, you know, the amount of hype and buzz that that, that it's created, and you know, on social media and awareness of it of it all, and and. There's something going on in golf right now, and it's a hell of a lot of fun to be in the middle of it. I can tell you that. Oh, absolutely! It's um, you know, it, it's the most popular golf course in the world, and it hasn't even been built yet. That's like just shows to his his and, marketing prowess. <laughs> exactly. Well, and what's crazy is is if it's popular now, just wait because this place is going to be ridiculous. I mean, it really is. It's it's just insane how good it's going to be I, I cannot wait for it to get built well, that's awesome well I'm, I'm pumped to hear that you guys uh that you're able to make so much progress from the ringer and that's actually looking like um you know construction will begin and like like you're saying you think early 2019 is pretty realistic i mean i, I you know it's like everything in golf it, it always comes down to the money but the way things are are shaping up and some of the conversations that are going on right now I think that is a very, very realistic proposition, and that's very exciting. Well, that's really cool. We'll, we'll have to uh, once that's all done, we'll have to get you back on, and you know, hopefully, uh, awesome. you know, I'll tell that story. And I'm sure uh, you know some listeners and the, listening to this are probably maybe a little inspired by you because your story. I mean, it is inspiring. It's really the only word I can you know put on it. And um, you know, if, if they want to get into golf course architecture, it's like you're saying, it's very competitive. It's hard to get into. But if someone, you know, really has a desire like you did, uh, what would you, what would be a piece of advice for them to get their foot in the door? Well, I, I get an email you know, every now and again from, from somebody who, who asked that question. I, I pretty much give them the same answer every time. And, and that is, is that you, you've got to get construction experience. Um, that was true in 2005 2006 when i was getting into it but it's especially true now i mean you you have to make yourself uh, valuable to whether it be to a contractor or to a golf architect i mean even if that construction experience means working for a landscape company on the weekend where you learn how to run a, a a skid steer or a mini excavator or something any anything you can bring to the table um you know is going to be hugely beneficial for you going forward and, you know, number two, um, if you want to do it, just, I, I tell people you can do it. The odds may seem long, but if you believe in yourself and you do not quit, you cannot quit. You have to keep going. There, it will not be a straight line. There will be a lot of downs. There will be ups, but if you do not quit, you keep going, you can make it happen. And that, that's ultimately, um, what it's all about. I mean, you, you just, you have to have kind of a laser focus and, and not quit. And also you need to check your pride at the door. Um, you know, my first job, um, in construction was working for $8 an hour for a contractor 
you know, banging stakes in the ground and digging ditches. Tom Doak's first job um, in golf architecture was picking up sticks for Pete Dye at Long Cove. Um, and look where he is now. So yeah, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to start out on top. Um, it's not glamorous. It's not, it's not going to be glamorous, but, um, if you believe in yourself and you're willing to w- willing to make sacrifices, you know, you definitely can, you know, you definitely can do it. And, you know, Tad and I, as we get busier, um, you know, we're intent on starting kind of an internship program and having, People work on our projects. You know, they're they're not going to make much money, but they're going to get a world of experience and seeing a how how a project is built um, from the ground up, and and that's that's the most valuable thing that you can possibly experience. Yeah, well, that internship program sounds really incredible, and it's definitely a great way to give back. So, congrats on all of that, and I think what you just said there really resonates with anyone trying to do something that they care about. It's you have to go through those tough times to figure it all out and come out the other side doing what you love to do as a career. But overall, Rob, this has been an absolute pleasure getting the chance to hear your story. I really appreciate the time. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. I'm just really thrilled that you guys wanted to talk to me and um, really appreciate you calling. And that wraps up our interview with Rob Collins. A big thank you to him for coming on the show and taking the time to tell us all about King Collins Golf Design, how the firm came to be, and, you know, Sweetens Cove and the exciting things that are coming for them. And if you're enjoying our podcast, then please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review. And make sure to hit me up on Instagram or Twitter at Ryan C. Walker underscore. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, thanks again for listening today.